When it comes to adventure writing, author Angie Abdu brings to her latest book themes from an ancient English text first made popular in the Middle Ages. I was a medievalist in a past life, which is a weird thing to be, but before I took up fiction writing, I taught medieval studies. You may remember from courses in English literature the classic travel stories known collectively as the Canterbury Tales. Written by Geoffrey Chaucer in the 14th century, it's a Dark Ages joy trip that follows the path of Christian pilgrims on their way from London to the shrine of St. Thomas Becket at Canterbury Cathedral in Kent. And I think people who haven't read Chaucer, they get this idea that it's a classic text and it must be serious and religious. The thing is, Chaucer is a raunchy body, wild, wild text. And I always like the idea of how it might turn into a contemporary novel because he's writing social satire of the whole breadth of medieval society and he uses the device of a pilgrimage to bring together diverse groups that wouldn't normally spend time together. So he has the fighters and the prayers and the workers and women and men and upper and lower and people who would normally never interact but they're together for the space of this pilgrimage and so he's able to satire the whole group. So I thought well what where I live what's a pilgrimage and it's the backcountry ski touring trek. Set in the fictional town of Colton, somewhere in the Canadian Rockies, Abdu tells in her book the many stories of mountain people. Drawn to a remote ski lodge by the last big snow dump of the year, these stereotypical nature lovers gather to offer up a bit of social satire and those of us who lead an active lifestyle. So you have the redneck snowmobiles and the pothead ski bums and the snowshoeing hippies and they're all this developer guy who wants to assess out the territory and all the different groups from my town are headed back to this country. So I get to put them together and I put them together in this little hut in the back country and just see what happens. The tales are every bit as raunchy, body, and wild as anything Chaucer ever wrote. And in the classic style of the medieval poet, Angie Abdu shares a comical story of our own lives and adventures she calls the Canterbury Trail. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. And what I think is fascinating is that you have uh, apparently very clearly depicted your hometown of Fernie, but it's actually in the book called Colton. How is it that people can see themselves in a fictional town that is only loosely based on a town that you've created? Yeah, so I called it Colton, and someone asked me why I didn't call it Fernie, which surprised me. It seemed like a silly question, because in my mind it's, very, it's a fictional place. But I did. I based it really heavily on Fernie of maybe 15 years ago or so when it was on that brink of is it going to become a tourist town or is it really a mining resource based town and I mean now it is a tourist town you know with a lot of the locals supported by the mining industry but it definitely is a tourist place so it's not really on that brink anymore but I, I called it Colton I wanted to have the artistic license to change things I wanted to be able to set it 15 years or so ago without explaining that I was doing that but it is very close. A lot of things about her, like Fernie. And when I put in little details of Fernie, I felt like it was a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge to local readers. But, you know, some people just read it as it is Fernie. And some people were offended in town because it's not, what did someone say? It's not the ski brochure version of Fernie. It's the behind the scenes, some with all warts and all, right? So some people were offended by that. And some people loved it and laughed and bought it for all their friends. There was a really divided response in town. 
which is not so comfortable when you have a town of 4,000 people with one grocery store and have to face them all every day. <laughs> well, I think what's really interesting about this entire conversation is that you are in the Canadian Rockies, but you've described a town that sounds not unlike many of the towns that I've known in, in the lower 48 in the United States, towns like Truckee for example, on Lake Tahoe, where you have these mountain towns and you have these very clear lines divided between the, the locals and the resort owners, the restaurateurs, and the people who work in town, you know, in production jobs, perhaps in, in mining or in forestry or, or anything like that. How universal are the themes when it comes to character development from small mountain towns throughout North America? I would like to think they're very universal, and that's part of the reason why I didn't name it Fernie is because I want people, in, by Canada standards, in Rossland or in Nelson or any of these little mountain towns to think this could be our place too. And I mean, Whitefish, Montana, it has to be just like, I mean, we're an hour and a half away from Whitefish. How could it be any different? So I assume it's, it's like that in all these places, and that you have to be there generations before you're considered a local, right? People really have this strong sense of ownership over these communities like once they move there the door closed behind them everyone else who comes it's not it says we have to save this perfect special pace and it's ours it's not yours and the last person that you know the door closed behind me everyone else is is a newcomer or something who doesn't quite own it or or it's not theirs and I hope by the end of my book everyone gets a sense that none of these people own it they want to say what it is right like is it an industry-based town is it a place where you escape from the rat race in the city and you live this pure close to nature existence is it a place where there's just endless recreational opportunities you come because it's cheap and you can live there and ski or is it a place where to exploit for financial gain and really competing ideas of what it is and at the end of my book I hope you get the idea that these people it's not theirs and none of theirs there's a a group of people that you describe in your book that's apparently a, a term in Fernie for all I know, throughout most of Canada, um, that you call Gorbys, geeks on rental boards. Tell me a little bit about those individuals and how they might be accepted or ostracized in those communities. Yeah, that was a real revelation to me as I was reading, and I realized how many ways there are of identifying an outsider. Because you think these communities sort of present themselves as laid back and relaxed and not so caught up in status, but there's a different kind of status. And the, there are all these ways of identifying an outsider, and the name for an outsider is a gorb, geek on rental board, someone who doesn't belong. And the worst insult you can say to someone is, oh, you're such a tourist, don't be such a tourist, like an outsider, right? And my husband had a big sticker on his skis that said, why is it called tourist season if we can't shoot them? <laughs> I thought, that's not really a very nice way to be friendly and make friends, just who you want to sit down next to on the chairlift. But gorb, geek on rental board, you can d- d- be it any number of ways. And for example, if you put your helmet on and then your goggles and there's a space between your helmet and your goggles, it's called the Gorby Gap because you're not supposed to have a space. Or, you know, if you carry your skis kind of awkwardly in front of you instead of having one hand and having them on your shoulders, you're a Gorb because you're carrying your skis wrong. If you're wearing something made out of cotton, you're probably a Gorb. There are endless ways to to identify yourself as someone who doesn't quite belong. And that's, I think, endemic of most mountain towns or or most outdoor recreation culture. As we get into the book itself, I'm interested in talking to you about the characters that come to this town. And there are are two fellows in particular who were good friends growing up. And one of their wives wants to come along on the ski vacation. Tell me a little bit about that dynamic. Yeah, there's so Lanny is the one, and he's uh, works at the mill, and he's a single guy. He's but he's started working full time. He's kind of graduated beyond his ski bum year, so he doesn't get out as often as he wants. He's excited. He's going on the ski touring trip with his friend Michael, and Michael's wife is pregnant, and she decides she's coming with them. And for Lanny, it's so annoying because women they just talk too much, and they don't understand the whole purpose of this. These trips are to get out in the quiet and and just you know be alone with your thoughts, not to have to listen to ceaseless nattering about nothing, as he puts it. And so he thinks she's just going to talk her whole way up the mountain, and he doesn't. Want her to come. 
I think it's a very testosterone-based way of life. It is a real macho way of life. And then even the girls who are accepted within the ski bum crowd, they're think, I don't know if I can say this on the radio, but it'll be like, oh, she's so cool. She has bigger balls than I do or something like that. There's really masculine ways of identifying a a woman who fits in with the ski crowd. And so I wanted to examine that a little bit, gender in the ski town and some that's just testosterone-based. And so there's a real sense on this trip that women are excluded or they have to kind of fight their way into this trip. When... People, and, and for, for my audience, particularly people in the United States, read your book. I mean, what do you want them to really appreciate that might be very unique about Canadian culture and, and that might be universal to all of our experiences as people who enjoy the outdoors? Yeah, I'm hoping it's not a particular Canadian thing, that it's more universal. And I never, when I write a novel, I never try to set out with a thesis, with an argument. I want to immerse people in the world and let them come to their own decisions. But I want them to think about community and the kinds of conflict that rise up and whether or not they're relevant or important or if we're putting the kind of energy we put into them, if it's worthwhile. And to think about humans' relationship to the landscape. And Ian Brown, in his talk yesterday, he said something about the mountains have no tolerance for human arrogance. And I thought that would be just a great little slogan to have on my book because that's what it's about. The mountains have no tolerance for human arrogance. Lanny had started to worry that he and Michael would never get where they were going. First, Janet had them traipsing around the backyard like a couple of puppies in obedience training school. They were supposed to be out in the wild already, but she had them penned up, following orders, and sipping on some gay, fruity tea drink. She issued commands, and what was Lanny supposed to do? Michael should have been telling her, telling her they were Gonsville. Kiss, kiss, hug, hug, see you on Sunday, honey. However he had to do it. Lanny didn't care. Just do it. No such luck. Then Lanny learned that Janet actually planned to come with them on a ski train trek in her condition. Michael sure as hell hadn't warned Lanny about that. When she pulled out her touring pack and started stuffing it full of equipment, Michael wouldn't even meet Lanny's eyes. They were going into the back country, the wild, no place for a pregnant lady. And Lanny had heard about pregnancy. He knew they'd be stopping every 15 minutes so she could waddle into the trees and take a leak. It'd take them a year to get to Bloody Camelot. Plus, she talked the whole way there, no doubt. Zero understanding of the whole point. Escape. Quiet. Calm. Not ceaseless nattering about nothing. Women never understood when simple quiet was the thing needed, as if they had to continually talk themselves into existence. Like if they fell silent too long, they might spontaneously evaporate. To make matters worse, she'd start every other sentence with, When the baby comes out. He knew where a baby came out of. Since when was it socially acceptable to talk about that place to your husband's best friend? Women today had no sense of decorum. As if all this wasn't enough, Michael hadn't bothered to reserve a spot at the hut. He claimed that it was too late in the season. Nobody would be thinking about skiing in mid-April. But now it was puking out. Anyone could be getting the same idea as them. One last, unexpected chance at the steep and deeps. Without sign-ups, the hut was first come, first serve, which meant they should have left at sun-up to secure themselves prime beds. Instead, they were playing hide and friggin' seek in Michael's backyard. Worse yet, they pretended to like it. Yes, darling, whatever you say, darling. Why don't I run one more circle around the yard for you, darling? Lanny was never getting married. The book, The Canterbury Trail by Angie Abdu, is available in paperback. Learn more about this and other great titles from the author at abdu.ca. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by Jake Shimabukuro. 
The Joy Trip Project is made possible with the support of our sponsor, Patagonia. Discover their conservation and new media initiatives on their blog, thecleanestline.com. And special thanks to the Walton Works, who support underwrote travel expenses to BAMP so I can bring back this and other great stories. Visit thewaltonworks.com. Thanks for listening. But you know, I want to hear from you. So please, drop me a note with your questions, comments, or criticisms to info at joytripproject.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>